At the end of each chapter, you will find a statement about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that statement that appears over and over again throughout the letter that begins to shape not only the letter, but shape the life of the people who receive the letter and, in fact, shapes our life as well. And so one of the things we're going to see and one of the things we'll repeat throughout the series is that the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised to come again, is the one who shapes our life in the here and now. To put it in a very fancy way, we might say eschatology shapes ethics, eschatology shapes experience. To put it in a very simple way, the thing we'll see is that the end is what shapes the now. And so as we move towards the end of all things, the end is also moving towards us. And this fills us with great hope, even in the midst of our most difficult times. And so this is what Paul is getting at. He uses the truth of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to shape the life of the church that was in Thessalonica. And the thing that we want to focus on is the same thing that Paul focuses on here. The promise of his coming reshapes the practice of our going. The promise of his coming reshapes the practice of our going. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. The word of God reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of God, of the Thessal- to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that is the word of the Lord. And God had his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated.
Now, to keep things simple, I want us to look at a few words that begin with the letter M. These are going to serve as our hooks to get us through this text this evening. First, we will look at memories. Memories, verses 2 and 3. Next, we will look at the message, verses 4 through 6. Then we will look at models, verses 6 through 7. Then mission, verses 8 through 9. And the last one is a surprise. Memories, message, models, mission. What is Paul doing in this letter? The background is that Paul had spent some time in Thessalonica. The book of Acts tells us in Acts 17 that Paul went to this place and he preached the gospel first to Jews and Jews drove him out of the synagogue and then he began to preach the gospel in the marketplace. And after a short period of time, the the pressure became so great that even those who came to faith in Christ told Paul and his companions, you guys got to get out of here. You guys got to get out of here. And I think they thought that if they could move Paul down the line and get Timothy and Silas out of the place, then things would calm down a bit. And maybe they did for a little while. But the people who were after Paul didn't stop with Paul leaving the city. They weren't content with that. They began to chase him to the next city and beyond. The point is, Paul was on the fly and he has to travel a long distance to get away from these men who are persecuting him. He had to leave the church with some unfinished work and unfinished business. And he was concerned about the church and the state of the church. And so in context, you would read in the letter how he was so worried about them. He sent Timothy back on the sly to find out what was going on with the church in Thessalonica. In the meantime, Paul is left with his memories of the church and the things that have happened there. He remembers the way that they received the word of God, not as the word of man, but as the word of God and and didn't just receive it intellectually, but they received it with their heart and soul. They felt conviction that this is the word of God. This is the true gospel of God in Christ. In their day and in their world, there was a competing gospel, a competing gospel that says Caesar is Lord. And that was the gospel that everyone in Rome was required to confess. Caesar is Lord. That was the gospel of Rome. And now Paul comes up along with his Jewish companion. And they're preaching a different gospel. A gospel that says Jesus is Lord. And they are pitting Christ against Caesar. And the people in Thessalonica are forced to make a decision. Because the preaching of the gospel brings them to a crossroads. They have to choose between religion and the state. State religion. They have to choose between God and country. And these people that Paul writes to had decided that God in Christ is where they would put their faith, their loyalty, their obedience. And they began to suffer for that. 
Because now they become enemies of the state. They're not wrapping themselves in the flag of Rome, are they? So the gospel is shaking things up in Thessalonica. Paul is long far away from this church. And he finally is able to write a letter back to them. And he says, I'm left with these memories about you. And these are not just warm, fuzzy memories that I have about you. But I am memorializing what I know about you before God in my prayers. He's not just remembering and recollecting things that happened. This is not for nostalgia. He is remembering the church before God in prayer. And the the word in Greek is he's memorializing these things. So he's erecting these memories before God in prayer to say, look at what your people in this church are doing. Look at what they've put up with. Look at how they've endured. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're accomplishing in Christ. And notice he uses all this beautiful language. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love in Christ. These are the memories that Paul has. And he's erecting this up before God in his prayers. I want to suggest to you that any pastor, any elder worth his salt will do this kind of thing as he prays for the members of the congregation he serves. You memorialize before God the faith, hope and love of God's people. It's often the case that when pastors and elders get together, they talk about the congregations they serve and the most edifying of those congregations are the of those conversations are the conversations in which the men are talking about the beautiful people of God that they get to love and serve. They get to boast about what God is doing in their congregation in the life of the people. No one could boast as much as I could about you. For your years of perseverance, enduring hardship, making great sacrifices, tough decisions, sticking to things when it would be easier to do something else. I mean, let's be honest. There are a lot of really cool, moving and shaking and grooving churches in our area. And yet here we are. The nerds and the geeks of the bunch, right? (laughs) So I can memorialize you in my prayers. Say, God, look at what your gospel is doing among the families in this congregation. And watch their children growing up in the Lord. What a privilege. So this is what it means. Memories. These are Paul's memories. Memorializing in prayer what the church is doing and becoming in Christ. And then he talks about this is happening because of the message he preached. Now, it's not a message that he created. There are many liberal theologians who will talk about how Jesus was doing something and then Paul came along and tried to change everything and and make a different kind of religion out of what Jesus was doing. But that's not at all what is happening. Paul is echoing the Lord Jesus Christ and continuing his message. And all Paul is preaching is Christ. 
He's preaching Jesus is Lord and Savior. And he talks about how it's this work of God in the word of God that is changing the city of Thessalonica through the ministry of the church. And so he he boasts and brags about God's work through the gospel in the life of his people. And he emphasizes many times throughout this. If you look at verses four, five, six, and then elsewhere in the passage, Paul keeps going back to the word and the relationship of the church to the word and the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word in the life of the church. We don't want to say that this is a word centered or a word based church. That's a 21st century language. These people are rooted and grounded in the triune God. In chapter one, Paul talks about God, the father, God, the son, Jesus and the Holy Spirit working together for the good of this people and doing it in his word and by his word. So when Paul comes preaching the word of Jesus Christ and the people heard it, they received it as the word of God and they made it their own and they received it with conviction and they took responsibility to take care of this word, not just for themselves and their family or their congregation. But then they start going out and carrying this message to the world around them. You can see all of this happening in Acts chapter 17, where Paul preaches to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, two very different responses to the preaching of his word. But notice that Paul is not taking any credit or trying to rob any glory from God for what's happening here. He is simply saying, look, I came and I preached God's word to you. The Holy Spirit made it work in your life, brought power and conviction to you with this word. And then you received it. And then Paul draws conclusions about this church on the basis of their relationship to the word. You know what he says about them? He says, I know you are God's elect. I know you are chosen by God and I know you're loved by God. How does he know that, Paul? How could you possibly know that? And he says, because of the way you receive the word of God. That's a litmus test. That's a litmus test. It's not about navel gazing. If you've ever wondered, am I one of God's elect? Does God love me? Did God choose me? Well, you don't gaze at your navel or look inside your soul to find the answer to that. You look at the word of God in Christ. And what does that word say to you? Do you love hope and have faith in that word? Well, then you're on your way. You'll know that God loves you and that he's chosen you. But the message does something to these people. It doesn't make them theological eggheads. They don't sit around their coffee tables thinking about the things of God only. They do that. But this word begins to shape their life. Paul describes them as models. He says you have become uh, imitators of us and then you become models to other people. This word is working in them in such a way that it's beginning to come out of their fingertips. It's coming out in their life, in their speech, in the way they're interacting with each other. And so this word is transforming them. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word of Christ in them. Paul says in verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When you have some time later this evening before you go to bed or maybe while you're lying on your pillow, 
I want you to think about this line. Think about what Paul just said. You receive the word of the Lord in much affliction with the joy in the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. It's an incredible line to meditate on. So many people in the 21st century, so many professing Christians in the 21st century want these ideal circumstances and conditions. If everything is just right, if the timing is right, if the place is right, if the lighting is right, if the preacher is right, whatever, if it's all just right, then under those circumstances, maybe, maybe I can take seriously the word of God. But life is very cluttered and messy. And so if I don't have those ideal conditions, then all bets are off. I'm out. And yet these Christians in the midst of their intense trial and affliction. Where they have countless excuses, countless reasons to say, I don't have time for this. I can't deal with this. This is too hard for me. This is costing our family too much. It's under those circumstances that they not only receive the word of God, but they do so without grumbling, without complaining, without whining. They do so in the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is how you know it's a work of God. It's easy to believe. It's easy to believe the gospel when you're having a mountaintop experience and you're far away from life and removed from everything and all the conditions are right. The scenery is gorgeous. The food is okay. The company is excellent. And you're all alone away with your thoughts. It's easy in that moment to embrace The truth of the gospel of Christ, because in that moment, it's not costing you a thing. You know, when it's hard to believe is when life is hard. It's hard to believe when life is hard. It's hard to embrace the truth when you have conflict and controversy brewing around you. And yet these professing Christians in the midst of their affliction believed it and they became examples to others. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but all the way in Mesquite, Texas, they become, uh, they become examples for us. The word example used in Greek here is the word for type. It's also, it also means pattern, model. That's what it is. They're models. They show us what it looks like when you follow Christ in the midst of affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. You think the two things don't go together, but that's the That's the time they go together the most. That's when you see the joy of the Holy Spirit shining and glowing among the people of God, radiating God's glory, even in the midst of those dark times. Over the last few months, I've pointed out to you and reminded you to pray for our brothers and sisters in China. This is just one example where brothers and sisters in China are very much experiencing the kind of thing that the church in Thessalonica experiences or experienced. I've read reports of people who say it's the Lord's day and they get up and they're about to go to worship and they have to make a decision. Do I dress for worship or do I dress for prison? Because they expect to be arrested somewhere along the way on their way to worship, perhaps in the service or on their way home. Do I dress for worship or do I dress for prison? Those are the decisions they're making. 
Do I wipe my phone clean and leave it at home? Or do I take it with me and run the risk of it being taken over and then other friends and family exposed? Those are decisions they're making. But the decision they're not making is, I'm going to stay home because it's dangerous out there. I'm going to avoid assembling because we might get into trouble. No, they are gathering together as God's people in the midst of their affliction. The joy of the Holy Spirit is moving them, moving them to worship and serve the living God. And as a result of that, here we are on the other side of the world with a completely different kind of experience, and they have become models to us of the Christian faith. The testimony of their life has been brought to us, to our doorstep, brought to our smartphones and our Facebook page, and brought into our pulpits and congregational assemblies. They have been held up to us as models. And this is the kind of thing Paul said about the church at Thessalonica. Not only were they models, but he talked about how in this whole experience, they are participating in the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. I want you to think about that for a moment. So here the church is experiencing all of these crazy and difficult things. Enemies were coming against them. Members of the church were being chastised by uh, public officials. They were being threatened. Their homes were being invaded. You can read in Acts 17 how one member of the church named Jason had to stand up for the faith. And then he's fined and has to pay all of these fines because of his faith and because of the church moving in and out of his house. The critics who came against them raised the cry. Here was the charge against them in Acts 17. It was against Paul and his companions and then the church. They are turning the world upside down. That was the charge. They're turning the world upside down. How? Because they're preaching about a different king. A different Lord. A rival to Caesar. They are shaking things up and we can't handle that. And you would think that with that kind of pressure and persecution and affliction coming against them, that the whole enterprise would be shut down. And yet the very opposite happens. Paul says, you guys are participating in the mission of God for look at verse nine. I'm sorry, verse eight. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols. The idea of this word sounding forth from them. It's not used very often. It's a difficult word. To translate it has a wide range of uh, translations, uh, uses in, uh, in the Greek world and in the biblical world. But here's the basic idea. Is that the word of the Lord that you receive from the apostles is now rolling like thunder throughout all of your region. Think about that. This church is thundering the word. They're not whispering. They're not whimpering. They're not mentioning it on the low. They are thundering the word of God. And it's thundering out from them in every conceivable direction. And as that thunderous word rolls through the Greco-Roman world, people trace it back to its source. Oh, it's coming from the church at Thessalonica. 
They thundered the word. They're on mission with God. And they're participating in the mission of God. This word is going out. And as the prophets had said, it's going out because as the waters cover the earth, so the knowledge of God will flood the world. And this church is doing its part to flood the world with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're on mission. And the word is echoing out, sounding out from them. Verse 10 brings us to the surprise M. Each chapter in this letter ends with a reference to the coming of the Lord. It ends with a reference to the coming of the Lord. And what I want you to think about as you make your way through the letter as over the next few weeks as we look at this, think about the power of the promise of God to shape our present, to shape our life in the here and now. Paul says of these people who have turned away from idols. They've turned away from the idol of Caesar. They've turned away from the idol of Roman peace. They've turned away from the idol of their nationalism and patriotism that you would find so common in that day and age. They've turned away from those idols and many others, of course, to the true and living God in Christ. And they put their faith in Christ alone. And Paul says that they're doing this because they are waiting for something. They are waiting for the son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, the idea of them waiting doesn't mean that they're sitting around on their thumbs. We have seen their labor of love. We've seen their work of hope. We've seen the effort they're expending in faith. We see all of that at work. They're not on their thumbs. They're not just taking it easy. They're on mission with God in the world. And yet in the midst of that, they are waiting for something to happen. And notice it's we're not waiting for the conditions around us to get better. We're waiting for ourselves to get better. We're waiting to feel better about ourselves. No, they are waiting for Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead to come again. They're waiting for their deliverer their Savior to come. This is the Easter season on the Christian calendar. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many people, it's time to stop thinking about that and move on to something else. After all, it was this week that the, the, uh, the epic movie, right? The epic movie of the year was released. And everyone is buzzing about Avengers Endgame. You will not get any spoilers from me. I've not yet seen uh, that epic movie. But what I want you to know is that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with its own end game. And it's far more epic than anything men could imagine or dream up. This end game is about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver his people from the wrath to come. As we confess each week, we believe that Jesus will come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. And so here's our M word. What do we say in response to these things? We say, Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus.
This is not about escapism. This is not about life is so hard and miserable, we can't take it anymore, we want you to come. No. This is about life is hard, it's cross-bearing, we're suffering, we're moving towards the glory of God from the suffering of the cross. We want to be with our Savior Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And it is the expectation of His coming that sustains us in this life and shapes our experience in this world. It is the expectation of His coming that motivates us and compels us to stay on mission, to live as models, to hold on to the Word of God, to memorialize in our life the things that Christ has done for us. It is the hope And the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that shapes our present in the here and now.